we are reading the Bible in 90 days and we started around uh, April 11th and we're somewhere in the neighborhood of day 40 right now. Now each individual and class may be at a slightly different place but generally we're around the same place right now. And so each week I try to pick up a little bit from the previous week's reading and then give you a little bit of a preview for the week ahead in your readings. Right now we are in the midst of the Psalms, most of us, but we've just finished reading about the, the kind of the, the beginning of the end of the Old Covenant. And so let's just talk about that for a minute. So you recall as you read through the uh, Old Testament stories of Israel and Judah, how there was a civil war and the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were kind of at each other's throats. And eventually the northern kingdom was overrun by the Assyrian Empire and their ten tribes were dispersed and integrated into Assyrian culture to the extent that they no longer exist in any sense, uh, meaning that the assimilation process by the Assyrian Empire was pretty effective. Those people who remained in the area north of Jerusalem were known in New Testament times as the uh, Samaritans. Okay, remember the Samaritans were the people that the Judahites or the Israelites from Judah and the old southern kingdom despised. So Jews didn't think much of Samaritans because they were half-breeds that were lost in the diaspora that occurred when the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom. So this is all starting to come together, hopefully, for you. You've read now about this civil war and about the overthrow of the northern kingdom and the dispersal of all the tribes that existed in the northern kingdom, the so-called lost tribes. And the remnant of them that remained in Israel were the Samaritans whom the Jews despised, but Jesus, as you know, reached out to them. So... Then there's the southern kingdom of Judah. They lasted a little bit longer than the northern kingdom, and perhaps it was because they were a little more faithful to the old covenant. But in the, in the end, what happened to both kingdoms and to the complete people that once came out of Egypt and wandered the wilderness and entered the promised land is that they never really fulfilled their part of the old covenant, the Moses covenant, you might say. And there was a particular part of the covenant, I call it the Jubilee Clause, that they had been especially unfaithful to. So God rode this roller coaster with them where they would worship false gods and even incorporate the false gods into the acts of worship that were designated for Yahweh alone. And God rode that roller coaster with them, but there was one part of the roller coaster ride they didn't even get on. You know, they never even got on and rode the roller coaster. And it was the Jubilee Clause of the Old Covenant. And you remember from Leviticus 25 that they were told to honor the year of Jubilee. And despite that, they went 490 years without ever observing the Jubilee Covenant. The Jubilee Clause of the Covenant. 
And just to refresh your memory, the Jubilee Clause basically said that every 49 years, you would let the, the land rest. You'd let the land rest for a couple of years. You would set slaves free. You would cancel debts. We basically would hit the reset button. You know, uh, it's like the IT department when they say, have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again? That's what happened. They reset the system. That's what they were supposed to do. But they didn't. They weren't motivated to do that. Let's face it, their greed got the better of them and they never bothered to let the, the land rest because after all, the, for, for the people of that era, the land and its produce, whether it was through livestock or agricultural means of, of growing things, those were the income. That was what they used to, to uh, garner wealth and power. And they were going to let it rest for a couple of years. They weren't motivated, nor were they motivated to let the slaves go free, nor were they motivated to cancel debts. And so they didn't. For 490 years, they didn't. And then when Judah finally capitulates and is taken captive by Babylon, this is what we are told happened. God carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword and they became servants to him, his successors until the kingdom and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of its desolation. It rested until 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. And what did Jeremiah say? God would extract a charge for every jubilee rest that you neglected. So 70 years equals the number of jubilee periods they failed to keep. God punished them by letting the, ran, the land rest. I don't know why I can't say that, land rest. I want to say rest land. Well, anyway, God punished them by taking the land and letting it rest for 70 years, one for every jubilee they missed. And this was because they refused to keep the clause, the Jubilee Clause. And as you might recall, I could preach an entire sermon about that, which I did four years ago. Do you remember four years ago when I came here, we declared a year of Jubilee in the life of the church? We said, we're going to take a break. We're going to stop and let things rest. And we fleshed it out over a period of weeks, and we realized that, that letting it rest is, in another word, let it go. <laughs> and we had a lot to let go, didn't we? We had a lot to put behind us. We had to cancel debts. And you realize, of course, that unforgiveness is holding a debt. That when you refuse to forgive somebody or let go of a grudge that you've held for a long time, you're holding a debt against somebody that they will not or cannot repay. It's true. More often than not, part of what makes you so angry with them is, is that you know in your heart that they don't even know that they owe you or believe that they owe you, right? 
And so you've held this against them as if you are collecting interest and one of these days they're going to make the big apology that you've always deserved with interest. And it never happens, does it? It never will. The reality is, is that Jubilee requires us to cancel debts, to forgive the people who have hurt us and wronged us, to put it behind us. And once you treat it like a debt that's been canceled, you're free because you're no longer keeping that on the books anymore. And so the Jubilee covenant was about God's grace and mercy and how much God desired for God's people to be like that. That God's desire was that all of the people would become as merciful and gracious as God. That they would learn to routinely cancel debts, routinely set people free. How many times have we enslaved people? Sometimes when you can't cancel a debt, uh, I, if, if you refuse to cancel a debt or, or a grudge you hold against somebody, you oppress them. You enslave them, right? You hold them accountable in ways that are virtually impossible. And so one form of unforgiveness is like holding a debt against somebody that they don't even know they owe you. But the other form is slavery and oppression where you basically punish them constantly. So once again, what does God want for us? The same thing he wanted for the people of Israel. Set your slaves free. Cancel debts. Let it rest. Just let it rest. How many times have you worked something over and over and over again, thinking this time we'll get it right and it never works out and you exhaust yourself and you exhaust the land that you're tilling and then the best solution is just to let it rest. You know, even farmers today know that some fields have to be allowed to go fallow. That is, let them rest for a season because you will eventually sap all the nutritional value out of the soil that it has in it if you don't let it rest and replenish. It's the same way with the things that we toil away at and hold ourselves accountable to. You can't keep working the soil and expect it to eventually come around, the exact opposite falls into place. It exhausts its nutritional content. How is that relative to what we read in the Bible up to this point? Well, you see, the people didn't keep the covenant. They didn't periodically observe the Sabbaths. You know, you, you probably notice that sevens reoccur in Scripture quite frequently. No, I'm not a numerologist and I'm not into all that kind of stuff, but I will tell you that there's no denying that sevens occur regularly in scripture. So we rest on the seventh day. We do certain things on the seventh month. We do certain things in the seventh year and we do certain things in combinations of sevens. And I don't know how, you know, God's just magnificent that way. And one of these days when we all get to heaven, there's going to be a bulletin board by the golden gates and it's going to have a binder there that has the answers to frequently asked questions. Because you know, it's just easier that way. And one of them will be, what's up with the sevens? Okay. But for now, what we recognize is that God requires rest and restoration. God requires canceling of debts. God requires forgiveness and mercy and grace. And when they didn't do it, 
it came back to haunt them. And as we talked about in previous weeks, the, the concept of blessings and curses as it's described in the Old Testament is a little bit of a misnomer because God's not really cursing us as much as God is saying, I designed it, I know how it works. If you run it according to my specifications, you get good results. If you don't operate it according to my specifications, you get bad results. I mean, that's the way I look at it. Isn't that just like a thoroughly male interpretation of things, you know? It's designed to work ideally according to the creator's specifications. And if you don't operate it according to those specifications, these are the things you can expect. Breakdown, you know, unnecessary upgrades and replacements, you know. And, and this is what God means when God says, if you don't do these things, this is what's going to happen. And everything God told them would happen is happening. And now, even the southern kingdom has ceased to exist. What was once a superpower has turned into a wasteland, just as God predicted. And it all stems from the people's unwillingness to forgive, to repent, to set free, and to let go. And this is the price they paid. But they figured it out eventually. And then you get to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now in tradition, in Jewish tradition, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. Now, this book is fascinating in that it is an excellent example of leadership according to a biblical model. In fact, it's pretty much the model that I follow as the spiritual and, and temporal leader of this congregation and this, this enterprise. It is basically an example of how you put spiritual things first, and then with spiritual leadership in place, you address the practical, tactical matters. And so you have in Ezra a priest who is trying to restore the spiritual health and well-being of the people. And the first thing Ezra does is partner with Nehemiah to get the practical, tactical matters under control, rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the infrastructure, organizing the people for management of what was once an abandoned city and restoring it. And if you look at how we do things around here, it's kind of the same way. I do the spiritual leadership and I have under me immediately next to me, really, a person who handles the temporal matters, our director of operations. You know why we do it that way? Because it works in the Bible and I figure if it works in the Bible, it's got to work here too. So Ezra and Nehemiah is a wonderful example of how the first thing you do is repent and then reset and then restore. And that's what they did and God honored them. And oh, by the way, after they came back from the Babylonian exile, they never had a problem with the false gods anymore. That was over. They never had a problem with that after that. Interesting. Finally, we get to Esther and Job. In Esther and Job, you will probably have finished up this week or you'll be finishing up in the next days. And this is a really good example of how things work on a different level. Um, Esther is a story of how temporal matters are affected by good and evil and the influence of godly people and those who are dedicated to evil. You've heard me say many times that you can always see where the devil's at work in the chaos 
Wherever there's chaos, that's where you'll find Satan. Wherever there's cosmic order, that's where you find God. And what you see in the story of Esther and her Uncle Morty is basically a picture of the struggle between good and evil and how it plays out on earth, how Satan is manipulating evil people like Haman and how God is working through humble, sweet, devoted servants of God like Mordecai and Esther. It's also a beautiful image of the appeal that Christ makes on our behalf to the king in order to make sure that we are spared a judgment that is destined to come our way. Esther is a beautiful story about the temporal world of good and evil. Job is a beautiful story about the spiritual realm of the battle between good and evil. In other words, one of them is a story about what's happening inside space-time, and the other one is telling us about how it works outside of space-time. And what we see with Job is a picture of how to recognize the voice of Satan. Now, I've always said to you that you could see Satan in the chaos, but you can hear Satan in the accusation. Satan is the accuser. In fact, his name comes from an ancient word that is a two-part word, ho-satan. Ho-satan means the accuser. And that's where he gets his name. And every time I picture him, I imagine this long bony finger curled because it can't be straightened because after all he's wicked and wicked means crooked. So this long crooked bony finger and it points and it accuses. It accuses God, it accuses the Son, it accuses the followers of the Son, it accuses the angels. It's always pointing and always accusing. So how do you recognize the voice of Satan? He's in the sound of accusation. He's in the sound of criticism and cruelty. He's in violent speech. That's where you hear the voice of Satan. And obviously then, where do you see God? You see God in cosmic order. Where do you hear the voice of God? Mercy, grace, compassion, uplifting, humility. These are the many ways you recognize the voice of God. And so this story of Job ultimately shows us that Job is a person who knew God on a superficial level, but through testing, learned to know God on an intimate level. We are like Job in that without Christ, we have a superficial relationship with God. Through Christ, we have an intimate relationship with God, and it makes all the difference. Now let's get to the Psalms, which you are reading or will be reading in the next week or so. And this is one of my favorites. So join me in, in uh, following along as I read Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I, make, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me, night, about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you should slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent, your enemies. Take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. And all God's people said, Amen. And so what do we learn from the Psalms? We learn the voice of intimacy with God. I recommend that you read the Psalms out loud. If you are not accustomed to prayer, I recommend that you pray the Psalms and just own the voice of intimacy with God through the Psalms. What you recognize in this Psalm, for example, is that it is, for all intents and purposes, a love song or a love letter from a bride or fiance to her coming bridegroom. It foreshadows something that will become very clear to you in the New Testament and especially in the latter chapters of the New Testament that Christ is our bridegroom and he's coming soon to collect us and take him back to his father's house. And while we wait for his coming, he sends us love letters. He sends us gifts. He sends us things to comfort us and, and to remind us of his great love for us. And this Psalm 139, it, it's like a love letter written back to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the King, where the author says, I always feel like you're with me. Even though I'm still waiting for you to come, I always know how intimately you know me and I can't wait until we are one in the future as planned. And, and it's just beautiful expression of the love that one can have for Christ. The, God, the, the love of God. David, as you know, is this, this complex and, and contradictory character. He's, he's, he's a, a foul and, and, and ugly in some ways, and yet he's remarkably sensitive and intimate with God and others. And here we see his intimacy. He struggled all through his life 
trying to maintain that intimacy with God that made him a man after God's own heart, even while his flesh was weak and it caused him to do dumb things, really dumb things. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that God can be so in love with people who can be so messed up in their expression of love for God? And so we recognize that this love letter is to the author of Jubilee. It's to the one who created the concept that's so easily ignored, a concept that requires grace and mercy, forgiveness and peace and rest. The one who invites us to put the old things behind us and move forward toward the blessing, toward the promised land. It is a reminder to us that while the old covenant is failing and falling apart at this point in our scripture reading, it is already hinting to us about the new covenant that will be perfect. The descendant of David who is beyond comprehension at this point in our scripture reading, but will become a permanent solution to the problem of sin. The permanent answer from God for our inability to maintain the terms of the old covenant. He will be the embodiment of Jubilee, this author of the new covenant. And God says in promise from the book of Jeremiah, I will surely gather my people from all the lands to which I have banished them in my furious anger and great wrath. And I will return them to this place and make them dwell in safety, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. It's a picture of the intimacy that God anticipates as a result of the coming of his son and the fulfillment of the new covenant and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We truly are one with God from wherever we came because of the Holy Spirit made possible through the covenant sacrifice of the son. Isn't that amazing? All of this is part of what you've been reading up to this point and what you'll be reading in the coming week. Pretty good stuff, don't you think? I do hope that you are in a small group and you are encouraging each other through this process. And I do hope that you are also taking advantage of comments that I'm putting up on Facebook in the Knowing God with Heart and Mind group every, well, not every day, but frequently throughout the week to help you through this journey. If you will be that intimately involved with the process over the next several weeks in, in this 90-day journey, I promise you that you will hear yourself speaking to God in that same wonderful way that you read in the Psalms. And it will become more real to you than ever that you are a child of God and that the Lord is with you always. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Please burn it upon our hearts. Please change our nature. Please help us to never give up in pursuing you, to never give up in this spiritual journey that we've partnered with each other in. And above all, Lord, help us to be at one with you through the Spirit in the intimacy of your love and mercy translated in our lives of mercy and grace. We pray for all of this for your name's sake. Amen. Mm -hmm.